Some of you will remember back to the 1960s, even before that to the 1950s, when there was a psychic on the scene by the name of Jean Dixon. Do you remember her? She made lots of predictions, many of which failed. Uh, some notable ones was that World War III would begin in 1954. It did not. Another is that the Vietnam War would end in 1966. It did not. Another is that in 1970, Fidel Castro would be overthrown in his government and forced to leave the country. Did not happen. The most notable and my favorite is in the late 60s, she predicted that Jackie Kennedy would never remarry the very next day she married Onassis. You compare her track record to that of Scripture, and you have a far different record. Over 330 direct as well as indirect predictions about Christ, the Messiah, what he would do, where he would be born, etc., are given. All with incredible accuracy, as we saw in part this last weekend with Daniel's 70-week prophecy, where we discovered that exactly 173,000 880 days after a commandment went forth in 445 B.C., Jesus came into Jerusalem as predicted. One of the most amazing predictions concerning the work of Jesus is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It is written seven centuries before Jesus came on the scene, but it speaks perfectly, perfectly of what he would do on the cross. The New Testament authors recognize that. That's why Isaiah 53 is the most often recorded Old Testament scripture in all of the New Testament. It is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other passage. Um, you ought to know that though Isaiah 53 predicts the suffering of Jesus Christ well in advance of him actually doing it, as does Psalm 22, modern rabbis deny that it refers at all to the Messiah. They think it refers rather to the nation of Israel or to an unnamed, unknown temple priest. They don't know who, but it had to have been somebody they've never heard of. Now, the reason they did that is because for years, for years, even up to the time of the 11th century, even during the time of the writing of the Talmud between 200 and 500 A.D., the Jewish rabbis believed Isaiah 53 was indeed messianic, but around the 11th and 12th century, a notable rabbi named Rashi decided to reinterpret it because it just looked so obvious that it was Jesus. And it illustrates a problem. The love of God is so amazing, we have difficulty believing he would actually leave heaven to die for us. The words of Paul, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. One person nailed it when he said, no other religion has at its heart the humiliation of its God. That's what this is about. There's two words that stand out, and I'm going to read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah to you before we take communion. Two words that I think sum it all up. Abandonment and accomplishment. The first nine verses illustrate the abandonment of the Messiah by man and by God, his Father. 
The last portion speaks about the great accomplishment. The first verse begins, and I'm reading a different version, just so that it would have great impact. Who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot sprouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. That means if you were to have lived 2,000 years ago and could you look physically at Jesus, there wouldn't be anything majestic or royal about his physique that would say, oh, he's a king or he's God. Jesus did not stand out from any other Jewish male in the crowd. He didn't have an aura about him. He didn't walk into a room with the halo. He didn't hover above the ground a few inches. Um, songs of angels didn't emanate from the walls whenever he entered a synagogue. He was God, but you never would have known it by looking at him. He ate like others ate. He slept like others slept. His hair was probably messed up in the morning. He didn't have like perfect hair days every single day. But verse 3, he was despised and rejected. Here's the abandonment part. A man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs and we looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Listen to that in the Amplified Bible. We did not appreciate his worth. Isn't that what the Bible said happened? He came into his own. His own did not receive him. Very few recognized his worth, who he was. You remember the woman at the well of Samaria asked Jesus the question, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? She said that to the creator of Jacob. The Jewish leaders in John 8 said, Are you greater than Abraham? Who has died? Jesus said then, well, before Abraham was, I existed. Answer, yep. Even some of the disciples did not fully recognize nor appreciate who he was till far after the resurrection. In fact, you might say that slowly but surely, he reached his zenith, his peak, and he began to be abandoned by mankind. John chapter 6, many disciples turned and followed him no more. The night that Jesus suffered greatly in the Garden of Gethsemane and he had Passover with his disciples, how many apostles went into the upper room? Twelve. How many left? Eleven. One had left earlier to betray him. Then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with eleven of his men, three of which accompany him to pray, how many of those three fell asleep on him? Every one of them did. Then he was arrested and he was taken to court and he's, he was in the courtroom of Caiaphas. Two disciples, Peter and John, followed him. Peter afar off. Soon they forsook him. Peter denied him and the Bible says all forsook him. So there was this gradual through the evening abandoning of even his closest friends. So Isaiah was right. He was despised. And then there was the cross. Look at verse 4. 
Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins, that he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. After the supper he had with his disciples, he went to a garden. Olive trees still adorn that site. It's called Gatshmonim in the Hebrew. Gethsemane, we have called it. It means the place of the press, where olives are crushed And Jesus there began to feel the weight of what it says in verse 6, God laid on, on him the iniquity or the guilt and sins of us all. And he began to be crushed. And the Bible records that a very interesting medical, physical phenomena happened. He began to sweat great drops of blood. An expert tell us that during a time of heightened emotional anxiety, it's possible, though rare, but it is possible, that the tiny capillaries of the sweat glands burst in that heightened state, and what comes out is that sweat mixed with blood. Under that stress, he was arrested, and he was taken before Pilate, then Caiaphas. Pilate had him scourged, saying, I find no fault in him, so he had him whipped. We pass over that. But Jesus felt it. A flagellum was used, a little whip, a wooden handle, and leather thongs with pieces of glass and lead and bone that would rip the flesh, pulling it out. And many experts who've researched it tell us prisoners did not survive that. It cut through the skin, through the subcutaneous tissues, deep into the back of the prisoner. Then Jesus carried his cross at least part of the cross. There was the vertical stake that was at Calvary. Then there was this horizontal beam called the patibulum. It weighed between 75 and 100 pounds. Now picture it. Jesus had been at trial after trial after trial through the night, has not eaten except the Passover meal sometime before. He has sweat. Uh, He has bled. A crown of thorns was put on his head. He continues to bleed. He is weakened. And in that state, he goes to the cross. Once he is there, they put tapered metal spikes made out of iron into the hand, what we would call the wrist area of the hand. There is a hook that is naturally formed in your wrist by two bones, the radius, the large bone, and the ulna, the smaller bone that strengthens that. And at that hook was placed the spike so that Jesus could hang from those nails. And he was nailed in his feet as well. And over time, the muscles spasm and the lungs give way and fill with fluid. And the only way for the prisoner to get air is to pull up on the nails with full force and gasp for breath. 
And sometimes that lasted for days. Frederick Farrar, who wrote a book, The Life of Christ, writes, The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually would gain green. That is when a victim took several days to die. The arteries, especially at the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of burning and raging thirst. I stopped at verse 9. I draw your attention to the 10th verse, again, probably in a different translation. He was not only abandoned by man, but get this. Verse 10, But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. Now add that to verse 6. The Lord laid on him the guilt and sin of us all. We talk about the physical suffering of Christ, but we must not overdo the physical suffering at the cross to the exclusion of the emotional, spiritual suffering. I submit to you the greatest anguish wasn't nails placed in his wrists by Romans or a crown of thorns on his head or the whipping and the beating or carrying the cross. The greatest was this abandonment by God, the Father. What do I mean by that? Well, you notice something. Go back. Recall in your mind the crucifixion. You know the story well by now. Through the whole ordeal, Jesus focuses on everybody but himself. You notice that, don't you? He's carrying the cross, and there's a group of women who are weeping. And he says, oh, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, thinking of them. He gets to the cross. They drive nails through his wrists. They place him upright. The first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then there's a guy next to him, a repentant thief, and Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then there's his mother at the foot of the cross, and he makes sure she is taken care of. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that day, John, the apostle, took care. So every single word out of his mouth is others-oriented. But then something unusual happens. The Bible tells us that for a period of three hours, darkness enveloped the cross, the city, the land, the earth. There was silence. Jesus said nothing. At the end of that third hour, the silence was shattered by a guttural scream. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting Psalm 22. Think of that word and think of Jesus saying it. Why have you forsaken me? Forsaken me? He's saying that to God? Why have you forsaken me? Can you think of a sadder word than forsaken? Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have had a husband forsake you, a wife forsake you, a daughter or son forsake you, a parent forsake you. But no one here, no one, no one here knows what it's like to be forsaken by God. In that awful moment, Jesus was experiencing, verse 6, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And by the way, it's the only time recorded in Scripture where Jesus addressed his father, not as 
Father, but as my God. What's happening? There is a relational separation. As Habakkuk says about God, his eyes are too pure to behold evil. So what happened? An exchange. Paul puts it this way. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Jesus took my place, took my, died my death. God gave Jesus what we deserve so that he might give us what Jesus deserves. First time I heard that was in 1973 when it dawned on me in a little apartment room in San Jose, California. Wait a minute, God. You gave Jesus to buy me? Boy, are you getting a bad deal. But boy, am I getting a good deal. You're going to give me eternal life? You're going to forgive my sins, all of them, and accept me? I'd be an idiot to pass that up. Not wanting to be an idiot. That day I gave my life to the Lord. What a graphic picture. Not only of suffering. What a graphic picture of what my sin did to him. Wednesday night, if you were here, and that's what this cross is all about. That's what the envelopes are all about. Wednesday night, we did something that we've done the last few years. We each wrote privately, without putting our email or address or phone number attached to it. We wrote our sins down, just as many as we could think of in a few moments' time. We folded the paper, passed them down, put them in an envelope, sealed the envelope, and on the outside of the envelope it says, and I'm seeing the backside here, paid in full. Paid in full. My sins were taken by Jesus on the cross because my sins put Jesus on the cross. The cross is the most dramatic picture of what sin does. It causes separation. It separates families. It separates um, uh, relationships of friends. Sin separates. But sin separated for that moment Jesus from his Father. That's what my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me was all about. That's abandonment. There's a second word, accomplishment. I finish out the chapter beginning in verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to fill him with grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished, By his anguish, he will be satisfied. Because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners." Now, in that section of Isaiah 53, the Father is assuring the Son that the work of the cross would save many. It's a picture of the kingdom. You might say a picture of ever-expanding group of believers who would come into the flock and become heirs, children of God. It began in Jerusalem. The gospel was preached to Judea, Samaria, the Roman world, and then to us. 
And we're part of that family. You see, it was never God's intention, never, to keep what Jesus did, this sect of Judaism, merely as a sect of Judaism in the Middle East. His plan always from the beginning was to spread it around the globe so that whether you were white skin or brown skin, whether you lived in the Middle East or the Far West, you could come to know him. For all people. That's what the angel said, isn't it, when Jesus was born? I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for a few people. For all people. For unto you this day is born in Bethlehem a Savior. A Savior. World War II, there was a man who died. His buddies wanted to bury him. They took him to a cemetery. They found the man in charge. It was a priest. They said, I want to bury our friend in your cemetery. He deserves a decent burial. He gave his life for his mates and for his country. The priest said, I'm so sorry, but there are rules. This is a Catholic cemetery. Your friend, being a Protestant, is not allowed to be buried in this cemetery. The priest could see the disappointment on the man's face. So the priest said, tell you what, you can bury him just outside the fence but outside the fence. So they did. The next day, as they were leaving that area of the country, they wanted to pay one last visit to the grave of their friend. They couldn't find it. They searched. They couldn't find it. They looked outside the entire perimeter. They couldn't find it. They finally found the priest. And he said, well, you know, after you left and I went to bed last night, I couldn't sleep. So I got up in the middle of the night and I moved the fence to include your friend. This must have been the great joy, Hebrews 12 says, was set before Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of moving the fence so far out to include you and me. He could see throughout history, he could see all those yet unborn ones who would come to faith in his son. I hope you have, and I hope this is more than just a ritual. I hope there's substance behind these symbols today. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. He was forsaken that you never would have to be forsaken. He was forsaken that you and I could be forgiven. You may have heard last year about that fella. He lived down south. He was a 22-year-old father. And this 22-year-old father was arrested and put in jail for attempting to sell his one-year-old baby daughter to the babysitter for $800. Now just imagine, project yourself far in advance into the future when that child grows up and she hears about what happened. My father? My father rejected me? My father tried to get rid of me? Tried to sell me? Wanted money? What an opposite picture of God who would let that happen to his son to buy you. And it was the son's great joy to make sure that transaction went through. So much so that at the end of the deal, the handshake, you might say, were the very words of Jesus, it is finished, tetelestai, paid in full. Our Father, as we take these elements now, 
on this Friday, which is such a good Friday, because it reminds us of how good you are and how good Jesus was, how perfect and sinless he was, and yet he came to die, to take what we deserve so that we might live and get what Jesus deserves. Lord, we've come. We've come to church. We've come fighting traffic. We've come giving up a lunch period, some of us. And I pray, Father, that if some haven't come all the way to the cross, all the way personally asking your forgiveness, personally receiving Christ, that they would. And as we're praying right now, you may be one, You have come. It's an important time of year to you, but you haven't honestly, if you were to examine your heart, you haven't honestly, personally, authentically surrendered your life to following Christ. You haven't honestly forsaken your sin and asked Him to bear it, making Him your Savior and your Master. Maybe you have paid lip service and tribute to Him in the past. And maybe you've only done it at Christmas and Easter. Maybe you do it more regularly. But as you examine your heart today, you're finding a Savior who wants to take you all the way home to heaven and give you forgiveness. And if that is your desire, as we're praying for you right now as our heads are bowed before God. If your desire is to make Jesus your Master and Lord, if you have not done that, if you're not following Christ right now but you want to, I want you to raise your hand up in this place for just a moment raise it up and I'm going to pray for you before we pass out these elements so that you can take these elements maybe for the first time in a new way well Lord it still staggers us when we think of what you said you did that it would please the Father the Lord to crush the Son to make his soul an offering for sin Lord, if you were willing to do that, then no wonder it's also true that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some here, Father, experience the heartache of being abandoned, forsaken by people. But thank you, Lord, we never have to be abandoned, forsaken by you. That you're with us always to the end of the world. And so, Lord, here in this place, on this great Friday, we take these elements celebrating life, eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.